All right, let me read our passage, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts For it, silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, creator ruler of all things, lift up our eyes to see and behold your glory, the weight of who you are. And may that um, draw us into your love rather than push us to shrink in terror or confusion. Help us to see your humility in sending your son Jesus when the creator became the created and enter into the world to redeem us and renew us and to to recreate us in your image. Open our ears and soften our hearts, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher um, that we've referenced before. I, I read some of his stuff in college. He's got some amazing commentaries on the history of philosophy, but he wrote this magnificent, huge book called A Secular Age, where he essentially tries to describe um, what it's like to live in the time in which we live. 
sounds like a weird thing to do, but he's, he's sort of tracing this philosophy um, that's, that's been uh, moving through history and how it's shaped the modern person. And um, one of the things he um, talks about in that book is how we live in an age where belief is contested, um, where we experience what he calls cross pressure. And so what he, what he means by that is he, he talks about how the average person that is an atheist uh, lives their life not believing in God, but has this sort of haunting sense that there is still something transcendent out there. And they, have, they sort of live their lives with this longing for a fullness to their lives rather than just this flat, this is all there is. But he says, but theists, people who believe in God, also feel this pressure as well. They live their life every day where most things seem to be easily explained by physical forces. And we do a lot of explaining how that works. And so we live in this, what he calls the imminent frame, that the sort of the world is not um, kind of upper story, supernatural and natural. It's just kind of this everyday, normal uh, way of life. And, um, and so we believe, but then we have this wrestling constantly, this questioning, is God real? Because I don't, I don't really experience him in the way I experience so many other things. Um, I've, I've witnessed this sort of cross-pressured living, and I've experienced this myself. Like many people um, in college, I had like an existential crisis. You know, this, like, what do I do with these big questions that I was being exposed to in my philosophy classes? And I started asking all the big questions. And uh, even though I had grown up in church, I began to wrestle very seriously with the big question, which is, you know, is there a God? Is there a creator? And as I worked through that question... Uh, I came to realize there's really only a few possibilities on how we got here, right? There's, there's atheism, which says there's no God at all, and the material universe is either eternal, like it's always existed, it's just always been material stuff, or the other theory is that um, everything that exists just came from nothing. So that's atheism, that's one possibility. The other is what people call pantheism, which is essentially to say that everything really is divine in some sense, there's this divine supernatural that, that sort of uh, pervades everything, and everything is really one. There's a, um, there's a spirit that inhabits all things, and it's uh, existed forever. And then um, the third view is theism, the idea that there's a, a God who is eternal and self-existing, and that that God created all that exists, all the material, uh, material universe. Um, so those are kind of the, the options out there. Well, I, I learned about how the Big Bang theory um, really changed this, um, this dilemma. Uh, back in the 1960s, scientists began to learn a lot about um, the cosmos and um, multiple people from different angles have basically come to the conclusion that the universe had a beginning. And so that really radically changed the possibilities out there. It ruled out the idea uh, that there's no God and the material universe has just existed for everything, uh, forever. It ruled out the idea that um, everything is God and is eternally existing because we now know that the universe had a beginning. And so that really only leaves the options of atheism with the idea that everything came from nothing, which I find hard to believe. And most, a lot of people do when you really press in and think about that, that everything that exists came from nothing at all, just suddenly spontaneously existed, or the only other option is theism, which is that the material universe was caused to exist by something eternal, non-material, and probably intelligent. Now, what's interesting to me is that I see this interest, this renewed interest in these questions. When I was in college, 
Uh, it seemed like the, the people who believed in God were sort of at a disadvantage, that they, the intellectual case was stronger for atheism. And, uh, but the moral case, the sort of sense of you know, uh, integrity and seeking to do that, that, that sort of leaned toward theists and Christians and religion generally. Um, but I've seen it kind of swing the other way now, that the, the case, the intellectual case for God is pretty strongly leaning towards theism. But the moral case is kind of gone the other direction. So what I, several of you pointed me to a discussion this week uh, on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. A couple of you pointed this out. And he had this guy, Dr. Stephen Meyer, a philosopher of science, who's a leading thinker in the intelligent design movement. Um, they had a great conversation. They really veer away from, they didn't go too much into the intelligent design question, um, but they went really heavy into, I think, the bigger questions, which is how did everything um, get here at all? And I thought it was a great conversation, uh, one that I'd commend to you. Uh, just to be clear, the PCA and, and Trinity in, in particular, we don't think the Bible mandates a particular view of like macro evolution and the, the origin of species, but um, we do believe, you know, God created everything. And that was one of the big questions that they wrestled with there. So you should check that out if you're, you're interested in that. Um, so all this stuff about the, the existence of God, I mean, you're here, you, you probably believe that, or at least you tend to generally believe that. Maybe you wrestle with that sometimes. Um, but the question of God's existence is not merely a philosophical question, right? It's a, it's a tremendously personal question, and very few of us seriously reconsider our beliefs on that question, our convictions about that, unless we face some sort of crisis. Um, and so, even though uh, I think there, there's a good reason to believe in theism, um, I, I tend to find that most people are not even open to debating that or discussing that, and most Christians aren't even open to questioning that, unless they face some sort of crisis in their life. And in the church right now, I think a lot of people are facing a crisis because they look at the scandals in the church. They look at their own, maybe they've, they've experienced abuse or um, uh, the abuse of power in a church. And, and so that's provoking a lot of doubt. But I think secular people also are finding their lives very unsatisfying and lonely and meaningless. And so that's provoking this openness to the question. And so... It's a live question today. I think one that um, we'd, we'd be wise to venture in with others. And if you're wrestling with that, I'd love to talk with you more about it. Tonight, I want to look just particularly at this doctrine of God as our creator. Not merely in the abstract, God is the creator, but in the concrete circumstances of our life, what does it mean that God uh, has created all things? So we've um, started this series in the book of Isaiah, and we're trying to jump around and look at the doctrine of God. We were in Isaiah 40 last week. Now we're looking at the verses before what we looked at last week. And remember, Isaiah is this prophet to Judah, and he prophesied for 40 years to Judah. Um, and then at the end of chapter 39, there's this shift in the book to when Isaiah begins to prophesy to future Judah, even a hundred or more years later when they are in Babylon and they are in exile. And he begins to um, give this message of comfort to them and this promise of rescue and restoration um, because they are despairing. And, and Isaiah says, God is going to come in all his glory and he's going to set the world right. And it's in that context that we have our verses um, that we're going to look at today. So I'm going to talk tonight about the creator, about rivals and about renewal. So uh, first, let's talk more about the creator, uh, this immense 
and glorious creator of all things. And I want to hone in on verses 12 through 14, where uh, Isaiah speaks about God as an architect and as a builder. Okay, And he portrays God as this great and immense and powerful builder of all things. Look at verse 12 again. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. So what Isaiah here is, is asking is essentially, um, who, has, who has created the world like God, who is this immense builder? And he's using this language as if God is, has a body. <laughs> and he's imagining God with a body, um, you know, handling all this immense Creation, you know, the skies and the waters as if they're just a little drop in his hand or just uh, measuring with the span from his thumb to his his pinky. These the, the whole of cosmos, all that we see is is like nothing to this God who is this great, immense creator. And he goes on in verse 13 to say, not only is this big, uh, not only is he this big and powerful creator, but he is filled with wisdom. He says nobody has given counsel to God. He didn't. He didn't go to the architect down the road and say, hey, how do I build this creation? He has all wisdom. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Right. No one gave God counsel is what Isaiah is saying. He didn't need to get advice from other people on how to create all things. He has all wisdom. And so he's saying sort of metaphorically here that God is the creator of all things. He says it explicitly a few chapters later in um, chapter 45, verse 18, where he says, uh, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other God. So he puts it up there very plainly and clearly. Isaiah is saying, God is the creator of all things. There is no other God. God of Israel, Yahweh, the one who's made covenant with Israel, is the creator of all things. This is an exclusive claim. He's saying there there is no other God other than Yahweh. And it's also a claim that rules out the idea that all the various gods out there and all the different religions are really just different perspectives on this one God. No, he's saying Yahweh is the true God. And there isn't any other God. All these other gods are not just different manifestations of me or appearances. I am the God of Israel. There is only one holy, personal, intelligent, and divine mind. Now, this is not something that we have to only take based on God's revelation. So Isaiah is saying very clearly, God, the God of Israel, is the one true creator God. But um, as I was just talking about a moment ago, we can actually wrestle with this question. Is there only one God, one creator? And think that through. And there's some really good arguments, some really good reasons to believe that theism and not atheism or not polytheism is true. That that theism is the best explanation for what we see. And I'm not going to go through all of these, but there's probably seven tiny little arguments that we could make. One of them I already alluded to, which is why is there something rather than, than nothing at all? How did we get here? How did all things that we see come to exist, right? Uh, is, is everything eternal? I already talked about why we don't believe that anymore. There's a, a, an origin to the universe. So everything had to start existing. Well, how... Is that possible unless there is an eternal self-existing being, a divine mind that created all things? We also look at the design of creation. We can say, why does everything appear to be fine-tuned just 
right, all these various factors, all these mathematical principles, gravity, you know, molecular level, you know, all, all this, all this stuff on our planet. There's so many things we can look to that show us um, that that everything is perfectly suited for life to exist as it does. And uh, how is that possible unless uh, someone designed it to be just that way? We could think about the moral argument. You know, what on what basis can we say there are objective moral facts? That there's moral obligation. Um, if we just think about morality as something that we feel people should behave a certain way because that's how we evolved over millions of years and that's what the community wants, that's not really moral obligation. That just explains our moral feelings. But most people believe there's, there's obligation that transcends how we feel. No matter what culture says about what's right or wrong, there are things that are right and wrong um, beyond our feelings about those things. We can look at math and beauty and meaning and history. I could go on and on. There are lots of different reasons that we would say, you know, theism, the idea that there's a God who's created all things, that is actually the best explanation for what we see in the world and for how we live every day. And so Isaiah, um, he gives us this divine revelation of this God, but we can also wrestle with these arguments and see this makes good sense. Um, If you want to go further down this road, um, and some of you have read this before, but Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, gives, I think, another six or so good reasons and and kind of explores a number of different issues that I think really presses the case and helps us see, man, Christianity provides and offers so much more than atheism or secularism. Um, It gives us a meaning that transcends suffering. It gives us a satisfaction that transcends our circumstances. It provides a way of life that makes for true freedom. Uh, It gives us a stable sense of identity that doesn't crush us or exclude other people. It gives us hope that can face anything and it gives us a basis for for morality and justice. And so I'm not not gonna go into all of those, but if you're wrestling with faith or if you're questioning and wondering, um, should I really hold on to this? Um, These are some great avenues to explore and to really think through. So, Isaiah presents God as the creator. But what's interesting is Isaiah also goes on to tell us that everyone, even people who aren't atheists, everyone turns to idols. And that's the next thing I want us to say. I want to talk about rivals today in verses 18 through 20, and particularly the vanity of idols. So um, Isaiah is making this argument after he says in verse 12 that God is this builder, this craftsman that has made all things. He asks a question in verse 18. He says, to whom then will you liken or who will you compare to God? And then he, he throws out an answer. And he says, this is, this is what you say. This is how you answer that. In verse 19, he says, an idol. That's who we compare to God, an idol. And then he just flat explains how idols come to be. He says, a craftsman casts it. A goldsman overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. And he doesn't really give a lot of commentary. He just is like, Here, here's what we compare to God. Things that people make. P- things that people dream up, right? And now, ancient people gave physical form to their idols, things that they saw as ultimate, things that they thought were spirits that they would worship. But we do that too. Uh, we, we don't call them idols usually, but we, we maybe have logos that represent our status that we worship. Right. Or um, we have certain brands or there are certain symbols or maybe there are rituals that we inhabit um, that show what we find to be ultimate. Right. Like everybody is worshiping idols in various ways. We may not 
craft a little figurine that we bow down to, but we craft all sorts of things that we serve with our lives. Idols are not just wood and metal objects. They're anything that's, got, that's been made by God that we treat as ultimate in our lives. It could be the affection of other people. It could be security. It could be pleasure. It could be success. Um, it could be power. There's all sorts of things that we treat as if they are God. In verse 20, he says, He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful, skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. That last phrase is really important. We do all this work to set up an idol. We don't have enough money to make a sacrifice to God, but we will pay a craftsman and he does all this work. And what do we get from that? We get this idol that can't even move. And Isaiah is sort of mocking this, this practice of us that we worship created things. We assign them ultimate power, and these idols have no power. They literally can't even move. It's just an object we've made with our hands or an idea we've come up with in our head. And Isaiah is saying, God is incomparable. He is immense. He is wise. He's the creator. Nothing compares to him, and yet we worship idols, created things. And, um, you know, if you've been around a lot, you hear us talk about this. Everybody worships and serves some sort of idol, something created that we've made supreme, Something that's finite and will pass away. It's not eternal. Uh, and we, we build our whole lives around them. And um, I, I want you to not miss this. I mean, maybe you've been around a while and you've heard us talk about this before. But um, this is really critical to understand in the Christian life. Uh, or if you're not a Christian as well. It's, it's critical to understand that um, all of the sins in our lives, all the ways that we disobey God's law... And, and many of our struggles, not all, because sometimes people do things to us, but a lot of our struggles in life are rooted in our idolatry. They're rooted in the way that we built our life around something that is created and we're serving it and it's creating all sorts of dysfunction and, um, and death and chaos around us in the way that we live. And if you don't understand, and if you haven't really taken time to dig deep into your heart and see what is it that I am serving it's going to be very hard for you to experience significant change in your life. So I talked to someone recently, and they shared with me how, um, as they've been doing this, they think, you know, respect and approval is, is really important, and that's leading to a lot of the ways that I'm behaving and treating other people that aren't, that aren't good. Um, and in my life, I can look and see there's just kind of this long history of um, seeking significance and importance and holding those up and my life gets built around how can I how can I get this and that shapes how I treat people and how I go about my work week and um, it, it affects my mood right so when I'm striving and I'm working and I'm obsessing to get significance and importance um, I've got to control things and then I, I've got all this anxiety when my my thing I think is going to give me um, significance is threatened and I can get really depressed right I said earlier I, I felt like I'm in a terminal of an airport. Well, why do you think that is, Derek? You know, because this building, you know, and, and where training's going, that's so important to me that uh, it affects, you know, my heart on a day-to-day basis. And that affects how I treat people, right? So um, if, you, if you haven't, if you can't today just kind of put your finger on, yeah, I, I know this is something I regularly turn to to give me uh, salvation of some sort, then I, I doubt you're going to experience a lot of the transformation that God wants for you. And, um, and you're just sort of living your life implicitly, not treating God as the creator 
um, that he is. And it could be all sorts of things, physical pleasure. It could be power. It could be success, right? Uh, people find, we find the weirdest places to try to uh, find salvation. You know, I knew someone in my neighborhood who like having control and power over the neighborhood association was clearly their life's meaning, you know? And it was like, that was a pretty sad way to live. I gotta be honest. Um, and yet, like how many of us have really sad gods that we serve all the time? Um, idols are powerless. They are, um, they're static, you know, they don't move. <laughs> And they demand of us that we strive and we work to get what they promise us, right? Um, Every idol offers some sort of reward if we just strive and work hard enough. And and the behaviors that we have to follow to get what that promises are different for every idol. But if we work and labor, it says, then you'll get the salvation that you want. Um, And it it sometimes gives it to us momentarily, temporarily, temporarily. Um, but then it requires even more the next time to get what it offers. And so we have to pay more. There's more cost. There's more striving. And it produces this cycle of never ceasing striving. And it's, it becomes a bondage. And that's because idols cannot love us. Idols can't love us, right? Which is fundamentally different than what we see in the picture of God in Scripture. Which is that love is fundamental to his creation. Not violence, not exchange, you work and I'll give, love. God the creator made all things from nothing out of the fullness of who he is. Um, the, The account of creation in the Bible is not that God battled against other gods and came out victorious and so the world has come about through violence It's also not the case that the the story tells us that God created because he was lonely or that he was lacking something and we're we're going to give it to him now that he's made us. No, the the picture in the Bible is that God created out of his fullness. Now, if you're like me, you get phone calls all the time from people trying to sell you something or someone going to give you a good deal on something that you didn't ask them to call you, right? Do any of you get these calls? I get like five a day. And sometimes they will call... And the first thing they will say is, congratulations, you know, you have just won um, a free vacation. And I never believe them. Do you believe them? You shouldn't believe them. (laughs) Why do we not believe them? Because we know that uh, people don't just give out free vacations to random people. They need something from you. And so they're, they're trying to give you this thing because there's something they want from you, right? And that is not how God works. God does not need you. He created you. He created this world out of the fullness of who he is. Creation is a gift from God. It's pure gift, right? Creation is gift. And and friends, redemption is also a gift. That's why John says um, that Jesus came and it's grace upon grace. It's gift upon the gift that he already gave us in life. And so this means that for Christians, receptivity and gratitude is the basic posture of our lives, not striving. Receptivity, like this, I'm, I'm, t- I'm receiving what you give, and I trust you to continue to give me what I need, not striving to get. Gratitude and trust is what God invites us into. Of course, that raises the question, which is how do we know that God will and can fulfill his promises? How do we know he's going to give us all things? 
And friends, that's exactly what Isaiah is aiming this doctrine of creator at. See, Judah was in exile because of their idols. They're crying out oppressed. And and he is comforting them with his promise to come and renew all things. And that's the final thing I want us to see tonight is this renewal. And Isaiah's message here is that God's promises cannot be thwarted. God's promises cannot be thwarted. Okay, God is immense. He is powerful. He is weighty. He is the creator and ruler of all things. And so in verses 15 through 17, he says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on on a scale. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like just fine dust. Lebanon cannot suffice for fuel, nor all its beasts enough for for a burnt offering. All the nations, all the empires are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, as emptiness. Okay, what is Isaiah saying here? God is immense and he is weighty, right? All the empires of the world, right? Think uh, Assyria, think Babylon, think Greece and Rome, think the United States, the USSR, China. These are nothing. They're like a drop in the bucket to God. You carry a bucket and a little bit pops out, no big deal. That's what the empires are to God. They're nothing to him. They are of no weight. He says, all the trees of the forest of Lebanon and the beasts don't suffice. Lebanon was known for its forest. He's like, you can take the whole forest of all of the most foresty place we know of, and it's, it's not even enough fire to, to, to honor God with a sacrifice, right? And he's saying, God is weighty. In verse 21 and 24, he says, God rules over idols and kingdoms and princes and rulers. And he says in verse 24, scarcely are they planted, these empires, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. He, he's saying all the most powerful empires you know of are like a little tiny uh, you know, sprig in the ground that pops up and then the heat wave comes and it just withers and dies. That's the nations to God. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, gone because of just a, a breath. God is incomparably powerful, he is saying. And then he, the, the, sort of the final blow is in verses 25 and 26, where he points right at the gods of Babylon. You don't, if you don't realize that Babylonians worship stars, you wouldn't quite catch it. But he says, basically, look up at the heavens, and you see all that? God named them all. He knows them all. He put them all in their place. God made those. That's who Babylon worships. Now, why is he telling us this? Isaiah is saying all this because he is assuring Judah that God can and will fulfill his promises. And he gave these promises in uh, chapter 41 through uh, verse 11, where he says that he is going to come in all his glory to save Judah and to renew the world. He's going to level the mountains, he talks about. In fact, the passage that um, this is coming out of is the same passage in the Gospels that are mentioned about John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for God. And then Jesus comes on the scene because Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about here. To lead Judah out of exile, God is going to come and renew all things, and it's Jesus that does that. The one who created all things, the creator himself, has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to save and renew. Jesus, who is the creator of everything, came into the world 
to, um, to become weak, even to the point of death, because of our idolatry. He went down into the bondage of death, and then God raised him up from the dead. The one who created all things has the power to raise people to new life. And if Jesus could go all the way down into death and be raised again, then we can be confident that God is going to fulfill his promises. God cannot be thwarted. And that's to be a comfort to us. So what do we do with that? Well, uh, I think bottom line, all of us need to hear this because it's so easy in all that we face. I mean, yes, we know God's a creator. If you're here, you're like, yeah, God's a creator. No big, uh, of course. But when you are in a place in your life when you feel completely stuck, Uh, When you think you have screwed up too deeply, when you think you've been wounded or you've sinned in such a gross way that you're broken and defiled, this matters because God promises to forgive you and to restore you to his people. He promises to cleanse you and to give you honor as a child of God. He promises to set you free from the bondage of sin and to raise you up from the curse of death. And he will fulfill that because he made everything and nothing can stop him. That's what you need to believe today. So if you, if you struggle to trust in him, um, I, I want you to know God doesn't need you to believe in him. God doesn't need you to obey. You know, you know what I mean by that? He doesn't need you to trust in him. This is not for his sake. God doesn't need anything from you. He is fully happy. He has all life and power. His purposes are going to be accomplished. He's never going to demand anything of you for his benefit. And he's never going to demand anything of you that can harm you, ultimately. He's never going to abuse you or use you. God wants you to trust him for your good. And you can trust him. He wants you to turn from your idols He wants you to turn from um, trying to have freedom in your life from anything that might constrain you. He wants you to turn from seeking um, self-protection or security or whatever it is you're living for. He wants to set you free from that because he made you and you belong to him and he wants you to experience joy. So that's why you should trust this God. Not because he needs you to. If you're um, hopeless today and you're doubting Uh, because of addiction or trauma or oppression, or maybe you just feel stuck in your life, remember and trust that God is the creator who promises that he is not going to let us remain there. And he can't be stopped if he's made that promise to you. He can work powerfully in your life, and he can work powerfully in the life of those around you. And he says, I'm going to make all things new. And finally, if you're skeptical about all of this, and you're just like, I don't That sounds great, but I don't know if this is really true. I just want to invite you to to dig deep into those big questions. And please do that with us. We would love to wrestle with that. You could have been a member here for the entire life of Trinity. I don't care if you've been a member for 12 years and you're like, I don't know if I believe any of this. That's okay. Come talk. Let's wrestle through these. It's a safe place to wrestle with these questions. Because we're not threatened by them. Because God's certainly not threatened by them. He can handle those questions. So ask them and let's think together. And the goal of that thinking is to come to a place of confidence in the promises of God so you can face the exile that comes about because of our idolatry. So I want to invite you to come to um, the Lord's table today uh, where he feeds us. This this meal is a picture of what I talked about. God um, doesn't need us. He comes to give us his promise. He comes to feed us and to nourish us and to give us life. 
And so he shows us, look, this is what my son did for you. He gave his life for your sin, for your idolatry. He shed his blood so you could be cleansed and renewed and welcomed into this divine life. So let's pray together.